0: Stop talking over there. This isn't a picnic. The picnic's over. It, no, it's always there's always a picnic. Linda's still eating. It's gotta be a picnic. Jeff and Joanne are breathing a sigh of relief. Picnic's over. Great time though, wonderful. Thanks for doing that. Thanks. We're going to Romans 13 tonight, Romans 13, the subject message. If you grew up in the 60s, you'll know the title. You say you want a revolution. Second part of the title will be Children Acting Wrathfully Naturally. I've said before, this is an unusual study in Romans. I've taught backwards to front. I've taught front to back, but I've never taught from two flanks, left flank pressing to the center, right flank pressing to the center. That's what we're doing in this one, Romans 1 to 4, left flank, Romans 12 to 16, left right flank as we face the message or the epistle head on. In the dead center... There is Romans 8.32, 8.31 to 32 is the dead center. And there we have God for us. God is for us, and he didn't spare his son, but freely gave him up for us all. Right in the heart of the thing, right in the heart of the epistle, God is for us all. God is for us all. The message Paul's trying to deliver to the saints in Rome, where there's all kinds of divisions and schisms and factions and fractures and fissures, is if God is for us all, then why are some of you against each other? That's kind of the question that Romans is asking when we get down to the simplicity of it and the heart of it. So, as I'm just letting you in on that before we pray for tonight's message, Paul's great theme throughout his epistles. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. All the implications of that, all the consequences of that, including a life and a lifestyle that is approved by him, which we call GAL, God-approved livingness. The two great themes we've lit upon in Romans is the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, which is undeniable if you know the Scriptures and the power of God. If you don't, then you got your own ideas of hell and a post-mortem punishment and where God tortures people in an eternal torture chamber. That's your problem. It's a problem. It's a big problem in Christendom today, and it's scattering thousands of people away from the faith, as well as many other things. Universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, which includes... The universal impact of the cross of Christ, that's redemptive impact, redemptive impact of the cross of Christ. That's really one theme. The second theme, so we can walk on two legs as it were, is GAL, God-approved livingness. And that gets into a community kind of a way. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, all the way to 13, 14, and then really on through 15, 13, God-approved livingness. And these are two great themes, and the result of that is unity, unity among believers. A unity that forecasts a universal redemption in which all of creation And all of people in all of their times, all of creation in all of its times will be summed up redemptively, salvifically in Christ Jesus. That kind of gives us the big picture. Now let's get down to some business and we'll turn to Romans 13 and a couple of moments for prayer. I don't know about you, but I need it. Father, grant me the grace through the spirit of grace and the spirit of truth to accurately handle the word of truth, to rightly divide the word of truth so that you can be honored and glorified as your son is magnified and as the spirit breathes life into each of us through the scriptures. And we ask that the result of this will be that we will more and more overflow with hope And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I think what I'm going to do is go a little bit different track or tact tonight. But Romans 13 is still in the offing here. Romans 3 9 is a pivotal verse because as Paul says to the interlocutor that he's arguing with. He says because we have previously accused everyone both Jews and Greeks of being under the power of sin. One of the great insights that we discover from Paul's epistles, especially Romans and Galatians, really, is that sin is considered to be a power, a cosmic power, a superhuman power that human beings are not equal to. And that's why the Holy Spirit comes to our aid to quench the power of sin. John 3.36, a much misunderstood verse. John says, the one who believes in the Son has the life, and that is not so much eternal life as the life of the coming age. It is an eternal life, but it's a life of the coming age. But one who disobeys the Son will not experience the life. The idea in the context is that such a person does not experience the life of the coming age in the present life, this present life of this age, capitalize the life L-I-F-E of the coming age and lowercase the life L-I-F-E in this life. So I translate it this way, the one who believes, that is, exercises the obedience of faith, as Romans 1.5 and 16.26 says, in the Son has the life or has it now, even now, To experience the life of the coming age, which we will one day have, of course, completely. But the one who disobeys the son will not experience that life in this life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Now, what does that mean? If God is for us and he is, then God can only be against what is against us. God's wrath is not against us. It is against what is against us. And so God's wrath is against sin. Jesus Christ, in his love for us, became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. To rightly divide the word of truth in John three thirty-six, the one who disobeys the son, that's the one who refuses faith in this life, does not experience the life of the coming age in this life. The wrath of God remains on him. What does that mean? It means God's wrath remains on the disobedient because such a person is under the power of sin. The wrath of God remains, it says, upon. The Greek preposition is hupo, a person who is disobedient to the Son, Because the wrath of God is against the sin that this person remains under. So the wrath is not against the person. It is upon every enterprise of that person. The point that I'm getting to is if you want a revolution and you're going to have a violent revolution against the powers that be, the wrath of God will be upon that enterprise. The wrath of God will be upon that action. The wrath of God will be upon that sinful action. It's doomed to failure. It's doomed to a total disaster. And the case in point will be A.D. 70, when against all of Jesus' counsel, the Jews, many Jews, zealots, went against Rome. And as a result, they experienced the wrath of Rome to such a degree that Jerusalem was destroyed in what can only be described as a second death, one from which Jerusalem will never return. The old Jerusalem will never return. The failed enterprise of a violent revolution against the powers that be at that time, even though those powers were not reasonably governing, the revolution was a demise. It was destroyed. And so, Men and women suffer in this life. A person suffers in time, not in eternity. No one suffers in eternity. God suffered in eternity. Men and women suffer. Many times, we as believers, especially when we have a message that's unpopular traditionally, we experience suffering. That is in the name of Christ. We experience Christ's own sufferings. But there is the suffering in the world. Because wrath is upon sinful enterprises. And people who are disobedient to the son. Well they enter into enterprises. That only invite the wrath of God. They enter into self-destructive enterprises. That God's the wrath of God's love destroys. Because God is for us. He can't be against us. But he's against that which is against us. So the eternal God suffered in eternity for men and women. So that men and women who suffer in time would never suffer in eternity. These are things that are a little difficult right now, but they'll be ironed out. Men and women suffer in this life. A person suffers in time. We all have, or we haven't lived yet. It has been given to us as a grace gift of God not only to believe in his Son, but also to suffer for his sake, suffer as ambassadors of his. We've experienced that if we've been in Christ long enough. But men and women only suffer in time. A person suffers in time, not in eternity. Because of the effects of being controlled by sin. That's another reason for suffering. The effects of being controlled by sin causes the suffering of many men and women in time. Against which God executes his wrath. God does not execute his wrath against the men and the women who suffer in time. But against the sin that controls them. The effect of which is suffering. Men and women do not suffer in eternity. Only God suffered in eternity. The the eternal God, the judge, suffered as the judged for all of us in eternity at the cross for men and women so that men and women who suffer in time would never suffer in eternity. I've repeated that. Or in life after time, Men and women do not suffer. We've already, and not only I, but many other commentators, preachers, and evangelists, thank God, have dismantled the whole idea of a postmortem suffering by dismantling the wrong conception of Lazarus and the rich man parable and other things like that, upon which some people have actually based a whole doctrine of hell. It's amazing how many people get really uptight and angry and wrathful at you If you do away with a post-mortem life of torture and suffering. It's amazing. It's astonishing to me. And it reveals human nature or the nature of man under the control of sin better than almost anything else. Pretty astonishing. And I was there. Almost everything I preach against, I'm guilty of at one time or another in my life. So I have great, believe it or not, humility. Now, if I believed that, I'd be proud. So I don't. So. Moreover, on top of that, Jesus suffered in time. God, who became flesh, suffered in time. To identify with men and women who suffer in time. So that they could identify with Jesus in their temporal suffering. Whatever is not of faith is sin, says Romans 14.23. So God's wrath is directed against the sin. Though that wrath may be upon the sinner, as John 3.36 says... It is the wrath of God's love that does not permit that person to experience the life of the coming age in the present time. So God's wrath is directed against the sin, though it's upon the sinner, until the sinner is becomes obedient to the faith of Christ. The obedience of faith, which is a theme in Romans, Romans 1.5, Romans 16.26, brackets the whole epistle almost. The obedience of faith is evoked by God the Spirit by grace. It cancels sin's practical power over us so that in this sense, God's wrath is no longer remaining upon a person. These things will be ironed out. Consider, secondly, Ephesians chapter 2. Look at this for a moment. I woke up with these things. I already had a message kind of ready for tonight, which I would have edited twice today, but I woke up with these on my mind. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. I'll do a translation from the Greek text just for you for now with some expansions. Ephesians 2.1. As for you, Paul's writing to a group of what the Jews would have called pagans. They had Christ preached to them, and their lives were transformed. They, did, they actually were saying, what happened to us? And Paul's explaining what happened to them. As for you, he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which, verse 2, you walked in lockstep with the age of this cosmos. You walked in lockstep. The idea here is that some authority and some power in this evil age as Galatians 1.4 was setting the beat and issuing the commands and you were walking in lockstep with it. Who is this power? Well, look at it. In which you walked in lockstep with the age, aeon, of this cosmos, otherwise known as the evil age as Galatians 1, four puts it. According to the ruler or under dominance to the ruler of the authority of the air. The Holman Christian Standard Bible shows some understanding of this by calling the air the atmospheric domain. The analogy here is to Ephesians 6.11, spirits of evil in the heavenly regions. And the analogy is to Joshua. These spirits are in the heavenly regions like the giants were in Canaan, the promised land. And had to be fought and overcome. He then goes on to explain the spirit which is still producing its effects. Still producing its effects. That's important. In the sons of disobedience. For our, from our standpoint, sons of disobedience means people characterized by the disobedience of unbelief. With whom we all lived once, we lived in the same sphere once, we all did, in the impulsive desires and reasonings of our flesh. Our flesh here is described by Ernst Cosman in his great commentary of 1980 of Romans as, quote, the workshop of sin. The whole person in his fallenness to the world and alienation from God. And to this extent, existence his existence is in the mode of possession. Possessed by, in other words, the impulsive desire of the flesh, which is the effect of the prince of the power of the atmosphere. We also know him as the adversary, Satan, Diabolos, the old serpent, the devil. He's got a hundred different nicknames. So, With whom we all lived once in the impulsive desires and reasonings of our flesh as the children of wrath. Please note the word wrath. The children of wrath in natural expression. It's not so much the children of wrath by nature, but the children of wrath in expression. If you've ever seen a child with a tantrum, they act out in anger. This is what he's talking about. We all had at the core and the mainspring of our lives, and sometimes cultures have as the core and the mainspring of culture, anger, wrath. We're not talking about the wrath of God here. We're talking about the anger or the wrath of people. In James 1.20, the wrath of man does not accomplish God-approved livingness. Never has, never will. If anger is behind a revolution, the revolution will fail. And this is extremely important to our times because never before has a culture or a nation on the way down the tubes expressed itself in anger. At least I haven't seen it in all my life like I see it now. So children of wrath in natural expression is how it should be translated. It means that it's very natural that people under the control of sin would be under the control of that toward which God executes his wrath. It means, it reminds me of the one time, I remember one spanking my father gave me and it was because I ran out where I was chasing a ball in Vermont on Mechanic Street. Not many cars... Cows outnumbered us when I was growing up in Vermont. There were 400,000 cows and 300,000 people, according to a census. But we, everybody had muscle cars in the 50s, and I ran out in front of a muscle car, and it missed me by a few inches, and my father pulled me back and whacked me. He was His wrath was not against me, but it probably was against the stupid, idiotic thing I did by running out in the road without looking. It wasn't. On me it wasn 't against me, but it was sure against this a policy that i didn 't repeat again that I can recall for a long time after that, at least three days. <laughs> that 's like when he caught me smoking when I was eleven. I quit till I was fifteen. Then he anyways don 't worry, I finally quit. The Holy Spirit said, You don't need this, and I agreed, and it was all over. Period, over and out. That works for a lot of other things, too. Huh, let's see. Let that one sink in. That's kind of preachy, though. I don't know. So, children of wrath by nature should be better translated as children who naturally act out in anger which is not speaking of children only, but we're like that. It means, secondly, that being naturally born, the word techna is used of children, naturally born of wrath, we, or they, they, we once, express wrath in the natural course of our lives. Anger motivates more actions than you know. Some people are phenomenally creative, and it's because they're angry at their father, (laughs) who said they wouldn't amount to anything. And some people are phenomenally creative because they know it's the grace of God. And they know it. My sister Teresa sent me a painting she did today. It was absolutely stunning of seven shells. In the middle was the sand dollar. And we know that in the sand dollar, there's hidden a portrait of the crucified Christ. She said, I dreamed this. And I painted it. And it it literally floored me. And she asked me if I'd name it. So I named it something and I won't tell you what it is, but her creativity comes from an acknowledgement of God's graciousness toward her not from anger and she has a phenomenal creativity when it comes to art painting sensitivity to art and that kind of thing and knowing that it's God knowing that it's his creation. I don't know if you're if we're going weaving back to the 50s now they're going to put me in the movies and all I got to do is act naturally. They're going to make a, make a story about a man who's sad and lonely. All I got to do is act naturally. First it was Buck Owens. Then it was Ringo Starr. All I got to do is act naturally. That's what Paul's talking about. Children of wrath acting naturally. People acting wrathfully naturally. All I got to do is act naturally is the idea here. Wrath is a kind of modus operandi then, or even a modus vivendi, a way of living, a way of acting, modus operandi, way of acting, way of operating, kind of function. Modus vivendi, actually a way of living for the disobedient. So again, it is not so much that we were children of wrath by nature as that we were natural actors out of the sin that controls us, sin against which God's wrath is directed. Thirdly, children who act wrathfully naturally is a phrase in which the Greek word phuse or phusis p h u s i s is deployed in Ephesians two three, in a dative case. It means that we lived in wrath, but it even means more so. That wrath expressed itself through us, in a distorted way. Wrath expressed itself through us. I'm going to pull up another Ringo in a minute. Ringo Starr, also known as Richard Starkey. Johnny Ringo. Angry man, apparently, if you can believe the movie Tombstone. Which is kind of slanted toward the Earps, but that's another matter. But Ephesians 2.3, in a date of case, children of wrath, means that wrath expressed itself through us and we became the agents of sinful wrath. Sinful wrath is a settled state of anger directed against God, against life itself, against being born. Like Johnny Ringo. Why is he so hateful? Why does he? And Doc Holliday says he's mad about being born. Against our parents. Against our siblings, Cain and Abel. Against those who have excelled in something more than us. Or against someone who was promoted when obviously to us we deserved it more. Against authority, fair or unfair against our circumstances, against politicians or leaders. Actors out of wrath by natural inclination is the idea. And so in a strange, very strange kind of paradox, we imitated God's wrath against sin, but we perverted it into wrath against ourselves. There's psychiatric gold in these hills, I'll tell you that right now, into self-loathing, into wrath against others, against our lots in life, against God. Children of wrath by nature means that once we were in a settled state of anger, as a result of being under the power of sin, and under the control of the impulsive desires and deceitful rationalizations of the flesh, when we put off the old man, Ephesians 4.22, when we put off the old self, the old man, the old self, we put off both this settled state of anger and we put off the lie, Ephesians 4.25, or the untruth by which we rationalized our angry actions. Now, why am I saying all this before Romans 13? Well, wrath is mentioned twice in Romans 13, one through 5, and there's a reason for it. I didn't even see this until I worked it out myself in the study. In our times, and Romans does apply and appeal to our times, in our times, in the time in which we live, there's an angry culture that acts out with angry music, angry art, angry movements. Angry ideologies. There are angry women, angry men, angry white people, angry black people, angry minorities, angry majorities. There are angry anarchists. There are even angry birds. (laughs) <laughs> oh, man, that was, okay, I knew that I reached for that one. But the anger or the wrath, call it orge in the Greek, of people never accomplishes the rectitude, the righteousness, the approved livingness that God desires of us. James one twenty. It has nothing to do with God-approved livingness. It's a prime characteristic of the old transient age, the passing age. The night is far spent, says Paul in Romans 13, 11, and 12. The night is far spent. The old age is passing. It's almost over. The day is dawning. Anger is one of the prime characteristics of the passing age. Men use anger to intimidate. But anger only reveals their impotence. In fact, sometimes it's related to and connected with and based in their impotence in life. Anger is a removal of true manhood. Even though it sounds or looks like a macho man, anger is merely macho. And the measure of a man is not macho, but virtue. And the virtue is humility that is the measure of a man. Jesus said, come unto me and learn from me because I am humble of heart. So all of this applies to Romans 13. Because political revolution, violent kinds, motivated by anger... Never end up anywhere except disaster. When we put off the old man, the person dancing to the tune of the present evil age. And I can think of two men that didn't. John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. He said, you play a funeral dirge and we don't mourn. You play a happy dance and we don't dance. You're like children in a marketplace calling the tune, but we don't dance to it. As a follow-up act, after putting off the angry man or the angry woman, we put on the new man, the one created according to God's likeness, in rectitude and purity of the truth. In other words, God-approved livingness. If anger or wrath is the basis for you wanting a revolution, then the revolution is doomed to total disaster. Karl Barth, in his 1933 commentary on Romans, wrote, and he was in Germany and bounced out of Germany for reasons that are very apparent. Quote, Even the most radical revolution can do no more than set what exists over and against what exists. So here we are in Romans 13. My translation from the Greek text in continuity with the rest of Romans. Every soul must be subjected, says Paul. Paul. To the governing civil authorities. For no authority exists except by God. And the powers that be. That's an idiomatic way of saying it. But it's a proper translation. The powers that be we call them. The powers that be have been established in office by God. Verse 2. For this reason anyone who opposes the authority. Is resisting what God has instituted. Moreover, those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Bear in mind, Paul is writing to saints in Rome during the reign of such people as Claudius, who bounced all the Jews out of Rome, and Nero, whose number was 666 and is He was lampooned as being the beast in Revelation, something not understood today by Religious fanatics who want the rapture to happen tomorrow. I promise it won't Although Jesus Christ may come and transform everything tomorrow and stay He's not going to come and yank a few lucky lotto winners out of here False doctrine So then, verse 3, for the governing authorities are not a cause of fear to benevolent but to harmful deeds. Paul actually encourages benevolence performed by Christians to the aid of their country. There were many very wealthy Christians who helped financially in the building of roads in the Roman Empire. And they were rewarded by the Roman authorities. There are other Christians who joined a revolutionary movement against Rome and ended up in shallow graves or on crosses for the wrong reasons. So the governing authorities are not a cause of fear or terror to benevolent but to harmful deeds. The red and blue lights behind you are not a terror to you if you're doing 70 in a 70 realm. But if you're doing 95 in a 70, they're a terror to you. $350 later. Ah, yes, I remember the time in South Carolina. Never mind. He says... Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do good, and you'll have its praise. For government is, a, is God's servant to you for good. But if you do evil, then fear. For it is not for nothing that it carries the sword. For government is God's servant an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does evil. So, let's rightly divide this because you can go way to the left on this or go way to the right on this, and we don't want to do either because going way to the left brings you to the bottom of the same circle that you go if you go way to the right. You end up in the bottom of the circle. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities Romans 13:1 not disconnected from Romans 12:1 Romans 12:1 says I urge you therefore fellow believers to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God bodies there in Romans 12:1 souls here in Romans 13:1 let every soul be subject to the governing authorities because they're set up by God can be compared with and connected to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice because both exhortations have to do with the obedience of faith, against which there is no wrath. Romans 1.5, again, Romans 16.26 obedience of faith that's enjoined on the saints the two exhortations romans 12:1 and following romans 13:1 and following they're both alike because both have to do with obedience to god even though in the second exhortation it is to god through or behind governing authorities paul is saying that every soul which means every believer because soul is put for the whole of the person as body is put for the whole of the person. And all believers as one should be subjected to the authority of God, which establishes the higher authorities of this world, none of whom are sinless. We hate our governing leader. He's not sinless. Oh, but you are. And I made it a point during the last election, as every preacher must and has to, I'm not here to trumpet Trump or to pillory Hillary or vice versa. I'm here to preach the word of God and to have the right attitude toward the governing authorities up until the time when they... Demand or command that I disobey God, at which time I'll obey God and not them. That's not violent revolution. That's just obeying God rather than men and taking the consequences of it. Someday it's going to happen. Either while I'm still preaching or the next generation. You can't preach that. You can't say that. You can't teach that because people are so hypersensitive now that you can say something that will cross the grains of their little tiny childish sensitivities and send them to a counselor. Can't do that. You can't say there's no hell where God tortures people because there's a lot of people that want God to torture people and that offends their sensitivities can't do that acts 541 it's better to obey God than men acts 529 it's better to act to obey God than men in other words that part of Caesar's realm which was the Caesar cult which demanded worship of Caesar Christians didn't violently oppose Paul didn't say violently oppose the government But he did say, don't obey the Caesar cult and worship Caesar, worship God. The consequences were a lot of Christians being martyred, of course. But the martyrdom wasn't dying under God's wrath. It was dying under God's pleasure and receiving magnificent reward for being faithful unto death. I will give you a crown of life, he said. Paul is saying that every soul must be subjected to the authority of God because he establishes higher authorities of this world, none of whom are sinless. Divine wisdom speaks in Proverbs 8.15. Divine wisdom or wisdom personified in Jesus Christ says, by me kings reign and rulers draft laws. Write laws, literally. They write laws. And it literally means... By me kings reign or rule, and rulers draft just or righteousness, literally. Let's take, for example, the Constitution, drafted by the original rulers of the United States of America. Not one of them was sinless. Some of them had glaring sinfulness. But that's an example of rulers, by God's wisdom, which is Christ, writing laws that protect human freedom, govern civil interaction and provide for a national and personal defense the constitution isn't divinely inspired but it was divinely directed and it's worked very well for a long time but it only works as its original drafter said as long as there's a kind of corresponding virtue in the American citizenry that corresponds to the virtue of the document Now some would say some of the drafters of the Constitution were slaveholders, true. They were therefore sinful people and God's wrath was upon that sinfulness. But it was also that very document that they drafted that ended slavery. It was the power of those righteous documents that ended slavery ultimately and also that brought about powerful, righteous movements for civil rights, which is both rooted in God, rooted in Christ, and rooted in the scriptures. I have infinitely more respect now than I ever have reading the history of Martin Luther King, the sacrifices he made, and I no longer view him as someone who defected from the pulpit but was called by God for a particular reason and fulfilled that reason unto martyrdom. That's my view. I know that doesn't fly below the Bible belt, but what else? Anyways. As Jesus said, wisdom was, in fact... And is personified in Jesus God made him to be wisdom. What did he say in front of Pilate, who threatened him? He said, you know, I could have you crucified or I could let you go and Jesus said to him You would have no authority over me at all If it were not granted to you from above Now that's a man He didn't say, Your time is coming, you son of a bitch. He said, You got no authority unless it comes from God. All the authority your authority, Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, under Caesar's authority, Tiberius Caesar, and the following You have no authority. And it just happens to be that my crucifixion is in God's plan. For a different reason than the people are going to scream for it today. This might put a dent in all your favorite movies in which vengeance was the theme. Just might kill them all dead. I don't know. Killed a lot of mine. I still like the movies, but the theme doesn't quite fly with me anymore. Previous to that, what did he say to Pilate? He said, if my servants were of this world, they'd fight to keep me from being from being handed over to the Jewish leadership, not the Jews, but the leaders in Judea who want to crucify me, in John eighteen thirty-six. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be handed over to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. As it is, he says to Pilate, my kingdom isn't from here. Pilate was getting the idea, hey, you're not from here. You're not from here, are you? And Jesus said, no, and neither is my kingdom. My servants don't fight the ruling powers. They exist and are reasonably ordered, these powers, by God. When rulers are unreasonable, Gregory the Great wrote this, and it's found in a document called Glossaria Ordinaria, or Glossary Ordinaria, Commentary on Romans. He he wrote this quote Gregory the Great the swelling of pride is to be blamed Not the order of authority God distributes authority While the malice of our heart engenders the pride of authority Therefore let us remove what we have brought from ourselves and let us hold on to things that are from God's generosity That's a good piece of advice right there itself Let us remove what is from ourselves and let us hold on to the things that are from God's generosity for he says listen just authority is in no way condemned but only it's depraved action. And again Karl Barth 1933 his Romans commentary says there is here speaking of Romans 13 no word of approval of the existing order. So he's not calling for a fawning sycophancy on the part of Christians, bootlicking, servile, and worshipful of the leaders. He's not calling for that on the one hand. But he says here again, there is no word of approval on the existing order. God isn't saying, hey, isn't Rome great? Isn't Nero a sweetheart? Yes, so sweet that he kicked his wife almost to death and killed their unborn child. What a sweetheart. He ordered the death of his own mother by putting her on a collapsible ship and said, hey, mom, enjoy your cruise. Nobody's saying Nero. In fact, Nero is the, Neron Caesar is the 666 of Revelation, not some future antichrist. But what's to be blamed is his depraved action, not the order of authority by God. But when Rome says, you better worship the goddess Roma, and they do their little poetry, A-M-O-R, the backwards Roma, Roma and slash Amor, the goddess of Rome is the goddess of love, you worship the goddess of love, no, we worship God who is love. I'll say it again, this is Barth. There is here, that is Romans 13, no word of approval of the existing order. But there is endless disapproval of every enemy of it. It is God who wishes to be recognized as he that overcomes the the unrighteousness of the existing order, not Barabbas and the gang, not the zealots. God. God who wishes to be recognized as he that overcomes the unrighteousness of the existing order. Let me ask you a question. Was the existing order of Sonatus Populusque Romanus, the Roman Empire, overcome? Or is it still with us? It was overcome. Guess who did it? God. Guess who didn't do it? The revolutionaries, some, most of them, the Jewish revolutionaries in the Jewish wars between A.D. 66 and 73, ending with Masada in terrible, horrific disaster because Rome didn't bear the sword in vain. Paul's doing the same thing Jesus did by saying, if someone, if a Roman soldier that occupies the land of Judea or occupies Rome asks you, hey, I need your cart today for a mile to pull some military supplies, Let him take it for two miles. If he asks for your coat, give him your cloak also. If he decides he's going to punch you on the way to work, let him offer your other cheek to him, meaning it's not time for a revolution against the powers of Rome. God will take care of Rome. Surprise them with astonishing graciousness. Barth goes on to say this is the meaning of the commandment and it's also the meaning of the 13th chapter of the epistle to the Romans. So I say in closing consider AD 70 Judea under Roman control. This apostolic exhortation by Paul arises seamlessly. It, it's just seamless with Romans 12 1. In fact this exhortation lives between two sections in which love is is commanded as the God-approved livingness of this time. Armed or otherwise violent resistance to the civil governing authorities is strictly forbidden. This is not saying, listen carefully now, I want to balance this. This is not saying that the governing authorities are always just. But that subjection to the powers that be is congruent with the God-approved livingness of Romans 12. And violent resistance as that which was brought about against Rome in the Jewish wars written about by Josephus, the Roman general and the Jewish general and the great historian. Those Jewish wars ended in total disaster. The violence that was brought about against Rome in the Jewish wars meets not only with divine disapproval, but with the wrath of the state and its military might. That's what Jesus was warning about when he talked about Gehenna, the fire around Jerusalem's walls in which the Romans would destroy Jerusalem and they would have to bury their, instead of burying their dead, they'd have to incinerate their dead in Gehenna. The Valley of Hinnom. That's what Gehenna is. It's not a place of post-mortem torture. If that's your God, you better reconsider your whole Christianity. You better reconsider your whole Christianity. If your God makes Hitler look like a Boy Scout, because God, unlike Hitler, tortures people forever, you better reconsider your so-called Christianity. For one, it's not Christianity. I'll look at the camera. It's not Christianity. You say, what is it? Something else. Paul had a word for it. You know it. Scubula. Listen carefully as we close. The judgment that falls on those who revolt is not the judgment of hell, but the judgment of the sword, which the governing authorities do not carry for nothing. The policy of non-retaliation is in total agreement with Jesus, whose teaching involved strict non-retaliation. To the occupying power of Rome in Judea Jesus started a movement called I forgive you me too it was Jesus who in reprimanding Peter he drew his sword didn't he he was gonna fight to keep Jesus from the cross he still didn't get the point did he you won't go to the cross Jesus said get behind me Satan You're an offense to me. You're a stumbling block to me. You're in my way. Peter pulls his sword, tries to cleave Melchus, the servant of the high priest, the temple police chief of the Jewish leaders. Tried to get him right here so it would cut his head right in half. Missed by about four inches and cut his ear off. What did Jesus say? Nice shot, Peter. You missed. You should have cleaved his head like a melon. What's wrong with you? You missed. No, Jesus said, put your sword back in the scabbard. Because everyone who takes up the sword like you just did will die by the sword. Matthew twenty six fifty two. Resheath it, Peter. This is not only a timeless principle that Jesus was speaking about. But it was a prophecy about what was to occur with those who would engage in armed revolt against Rome. Peter got the point. And, of course, Jesus healed the guy's ear, put it back on. You'd think they'd get a hint of that. Then the temple police would say, wait a minute, he just put his ear back on. Why are we taking him to kill him again? Or in John, when he said they said, we're looking for Jesus, he said, I am. And the whole crowd fell backwards. Hey, this guy might be God. Are we sure about this? So Jesus was talking about all who take up the sword will die by the sword. He wasn't saying across the board, there is such a thing as self-defense. There is such a thing as national defense. And there is such a thing as recently a college did this thing and the girl was on the news the other night and she said they had a little thing on this website or whatever and they said we should have strong men. We should not feminize our men because we need men to be strong because they will protect people. Strong men protect people. And if we feminize men, everybody's effeminate, then there's no protectors and no defenders. And, of course, whatever it was they put it up on got taken down because that must have offended somebody. Toxic masculinity, they call it. What? Toxic? I'm sorry I was born a male. A guy told me the other day he was stopped in Oakland to help a woman in the middle of the street who dropped her luggage and it was all over the street. He stopped to pick her up. Somebody whose gender is undetermined then accosted him and said, so I suppose you, a cisgender male, meaning someone who agrees with his gender at birth, how dare you? Thought you had to step in and be the big male hero for that woman. No, he said her luggage was all over the street. I thought I'd help her and maybe save her from getting hit by a car. Sorry. But you got to be angry about something, don't you? So I'm not... You see, Jesus isn't saying that there isn't a time for self-defense, defense of your home, your family, even your nation. He's just saying you don't take up the sword in a violent retaliatory mode against the powers that be. It happens to be my Father's will above the will of Pontius Pilate that I go to the cross because I'm going to do a little thing there called save all of humankind in all of its times from the present evil age and from the consequences of sin by enduring a death for the sin of the world so that I can give all of humanity in all of its times, including the perpetrators and the victims the unspeakable gift of eternal life through my grace and through God's love. So let's not stop that. That's all that, we'll, we'll continue this tomorrow night. Maybe thank you father for this opportunity. The word of God is more than just something we teach academically. It's obviously got some pop to it, some life to it, some application to it. And we thank you for that father. I thank you for the,